1: Hey, everybody, and welcome to Banfield. I'm Brian Entonin in for Ashley tonight. She's still feeling a little under the weather, uh, so I'm filling in for her tonight. Uh, I'm actually at CrimeCon right now. If you met me today at CrimeCon, which is the big true crime conference, 6,000 uh, true crime fans all in one place. It's in Orlando. It's not an optical illusion. I threw my suit on. I put the tie on. I ran out to a mobile studio uh, to fill in for Ashley until she feels better, and here we go. It is Friday night It's a busy Friday night. We continue to follow uh, the brutal murder of a cyclist in Las Vegas, all caught on video. Two teenage boys laughing as they run down a retired police chief out for his morning ride. Well, tonight, both of those teens are behind bars. They are set to be tried as adults. But how did we get here? What made those kids do that? Tonight, we have new details on the suspect's childhoods. One of their moms, in fact, says she is still waiting for the truth. We're going to have all the new information on that. We've got a live report. Uh, Then new information about the Soldiers of Christ. You remember we talked about them earlier this week, the group that was allegedly behind the torture and murder of a woman in Georgia. Were they actually a religious death cult or an organized crime operation? An expert will join me live tonight, going to explain the difference and how to actually save someone who was under the control of either one of those kinds of cults. Plus the return of Cousin Eddie. He never really went away. He's been in and out of court and in and out of jail in connection with the schemes of Alex Murdoch. Murdoch, of course, was in the news this week uh, with a bombshell admission in federal court. Cousin Eddie wants to clear the air, he says, about that scheme to shoot Alex in the head and the real reason Alex wanted him to do it. It is a wild story. Uh, And tonight, we'll tell you who exactly Cousin Eddie is. If you haven't been following, we're going to fill you in uh, and where exactly he fits in uh, with the Murdoch drama. But we begin tonight, uh, of course, in Las Vegas. We've been covering it all night. We're one of the only uh, networks staying on top of it. Developments in the despicable hit-and-run uh, crash. Last night, we learned it was 18-year-old Jesus Ayala and 16-year-old Yazimir Keys, who brutally ran down bicyclists Andy Propst in Las Vegas, a retired police chief from California, on the morning of August 14th. We all witnessed the crime in the shocking viral video that made its rounds uh, at their high school. The two of them, 16 and 17 years old, they intentionally run over and kill a man on a bicycle. It is disgusting a shocking crime for its brutality and violence, shocking for the callousness of the person who recorded it, and of course, shocking for the family uh, who lost a husband and a father. And now, of course, we know uh, those two punks have to face the consequences as adults. They're not going to be in juvie court anymore. They're going to big boy court, adult court. The video, uh, likely the biggest piece of evidence, uh, gets harder to watch every single time. But to fully understand the absolutely disregard for human life and to hear the laughter as the two commit an unforgivable crime, you you just have to see it to understand it. Tonight, though, uh, we're not gonna show you the whole thing. We showed it to you a couple of times. It was important to see it, uh, to understand why this was so serious. But tonight we're gonna stop it before the victim is actually struck because I think everyone has seen the video enough by now. Uh, But take a look.
2: I
3: go.
1: So, again, if you've been watching this video um, and this show, you, you've seen the full video by now. Uh, We've shown it to you the last couple of nights. It's so disturbing. Again, not going to show it to you at night uh, because, frankly, um, it's just uh, we've seen it enough. It's disturbing enough. But basically what happens is the teens laughed, joked uh, about hitting uh, and killing this man. So, So how exactly did we get here? Every day we're learning more about the accused. Again, 16 and 17 years old. Just, just teenagers when the crime was committed. Our News Nation affiliate in Las Vegas caught the mother of Jesus Ayala, the driver in the video. Now eighteen years old, spent his childhood. We've learned in and out of juvie. Well, outside of the courthouse today, uh, they caught up with the mom. Here's what she had to say.
0: I don't know what happened to my son. I don't know. I'm
1: sorry. So she has also said she hopes God forgives him. The mother of Yazimir Keys, however, uh, she told our affiliate she is still waiting for the truth that Yasmir's story will be told. What exactly that means, I mean, it's on video. We don't know. Uh, but now we know that Yasmir's story uh, is a sad one. Obviously, he's facing murder charges as an adult at just 16 years old. But the same mother who was waiting for the truth, get this, was also charged with abusing him and abusing his siblings. And we said this at the beginning of the week. This wasn't going to have just happened in a vacuum. Well, now the details are coming out, and they're proving that. At the young age of eight, he was already in the welfare system. His mother charged with five counts of child abuse after cops found her kids, five of them, ages two to nine, all alone at home with no food. At least one knife on the kitchen counter, and generally a house in very, very poor condition. So that's how all of this began. It's all starting to make sense now. And we were questioning earlier this week, do you blame the parents? Well, here we go. I want to bring in Vanessa Murphy. She's an investigative reporter with our Las Vegas affiliate, KLAS. She's been all over the story, breaking new exclusive information every single day. We're lucky to have her again tonight. Um, Vanessa, tell me the new information that you have been able to obtain today on the arrest of Yasmeer Keys. Um, what did you learn? What's new tonight?
0: We learned more about how police eventually caught up to him and captured him. Now, you may remember Jesus Ayala was taken into custody the day of that alleged crime spree. Police knew there was a passenger involved, but they had to identify him. Then Keys, Jameer Keys, was taken into custody this past Tuesday. So what we learned is this video was circulating among some Las Vegas teens, some students. One student decided to tell a school resource officer at the school so that resource officer reaches out to police. So, again, one student made a difference here by telling an adult about this frightening video. Then police do their investigation. They eventually find some sort of uh, Instagram chat between a group. Uh, Keys, someone says, you know, acknowledges the video. Keys says, delete it. Then fast forward to September 14th. Keys, not yet in custody, is in a fight, according to our sources. There's video recorded of that fight. Police notice sneakers, which they say, match the sneakers in the video we've all seen
1: so you're saying vanessa that not only did they commit this awful awful crime but they wanted to delete the video to try to cover it up is is that what you're learning
0: according to our sources Yes, Keys wanted that video to be deleted. Look, he would know he's going to be in trouble, right? Um, I believe the word snitch was used. He was concerned about that, but he did want that video deleted. At that point, it was too late.
1: It's interesting, Vanessa. When we first started covering the story at the beginning of the week, it was almost like we were talking as if, as if these were just kids. What was wrong with these kids and this prank? But it's much more organized than that. Um, the, the, the crimes that they've committed in the past are serious. Jesus' mom told you she doesn't know what went wrong, but now you've learned um, that he's been in and out of juvie. I mean, clearly she knew what went wrong.
0: Yeah, Jesus Ayala has a lengthy history in the juvenile system. We are hearing that he had an active warrant for domestic battery by strangulation. It's in the juvenile system, though, right? So you have to remember, these juvenile records are typically sealed unless it's a charge like murder now moved to the adult system for both of these teens.
1: So domestic battery by strangulation yet this teenager is out on the street because he was in the juvenile system where you get out very, very quickly. I mean, the more we learn, the more disturbing it is. Is there any more we know about his family? Have you been able to to learn any more about them, about the parents?
0: we've been trying to um as you mentioned his mother was in court that's when i tried speaking with her on wednesday after his last hearing in juvenile court the hearing before that on september 11th his mother was there with a spanish interpreter his sister was also there so we're trying to learn more at this point we just know he does have a lengthy record in the juvenile system and you know he he knew the juvenile system, right? As we've reported, um, when police took him into custody, our sources say that he said, I'm going to get a slap on the wrist. I'm just going to get 30 days and even referred to the juvenile system. Again, that's according to our sources.
1: So he said after killing a man that he was just going to get 30 days?
0: So police say he they took him into custody and informed him it was for a warrant and obstructing a police officer um, we're hearing the teens ran on august fourteenth trying to get away from police after their crime spree then police take him into custody but they don't mention the hit and run yet he mentions it first that's not going to be good for his defense team right but again He's speaking with an officer and seemingly showed no remorse, according to our sources, Mm. Uh, again said, I'm just going to get a slap on the wrist. It's juvenile. It'll be 30 days in and out.
1: Unbelievable, Vanessa. Uh, You have been digging all of this up since the beginning when the records were sealed. I mean, when when they were first in juvenile court, we couldn't see anything, but you still managed to to get a lot of info. Uh, Thank you so much for the update tonight. We'll check back in with you next week uh, and see what else you uncover. I want to bring in now Caitlin Becker, senior reporter for DailyMail.com, and Dr. Judith Joseph, uh, a board-certified psychiatrist and researcher who treats both adults uh, and children, to to really just help us understand this all. First of all, I want to start with you, Caitlin. Um, The attack on Andy Probst, it was not the first of the day. And this is where I think this all goes to the next level, where if your blood isn't already boiling over this whole situation and these teenagers and why they were even out of jail, we're now learning that they are tied to three other hit and runs. Explain this to us, Caitlin.
4: Well, Brian, we actually knew previously that they had ran into a white Toyota kind of jostled the side of that car and then moved on. So I don't know if that counts for one of the hit and runs. But prior to that, they are accused of mowing down a 72 year old man on a bike and so i don't know if we're adding two more to that or one more to that but their alleged crime spree seems to have gone on for some time and they're accused of stealing multiple cars in this process and apparently Switching spots. I don't know if they switch spots in the same car or they switch spots every time they stole another car. But it seemed that when one was driving, the other one was filming and then the other one would drive and then the next one would film mm. and they would kind of go back and forth, which seems to me like there's probably more video evidence that police will likely have connected or c- collected and connected to all of these other previous alleged crimes in addition to the one that took Andrea's probes life i think there's something like 18 charges that they're facing
1: let's hope that they can get the video because you heard vanessa her sources were saying that one of the teens was telling everybody to delete the videos Uh, which which is just awful. Um, Caitlin, what have you noticed uh, about these cars, these stolen cars that they were in? Is there anything interesting about the cars? There
4: is. I'm actually trying to hear back from Metropedia in Las Vegas to get this confirmed. But the first thing I noticed about the Hyundai that hit Andreas Probst right here is that it was a 2016 Hyundai. And then we found out that one of the other cars they're accused of They're accused of having stolen is a Kia Soul. Now, Hyundai and Kia are owned by the same parent company and models of those cars between 2015 and 2019 are easy to steal. And we know this because the the company's actually settled a 200 million dollar settlement about this anti-theft. And the reason they're easy to steal is because you can bypass the ignition with a USB And there are popular TikToks going around teaching teens how to do just that. And there's software, anti-theft software, that you can install in your car to protect you against that. My stepmom has a Hyundai that falls into this category of time. Someone tried to steal it. She had just installed that software, but the police officer told her, even though her car was broken into, that earlier in the night a group of teens stole four or five other Hyundais and Kias in the area. And essentially it's called the Kia Challenge, and they take them drive them Mm. until they run out of gas, ditch them, pick up another, drive them until they run out of gas, ditch them, pick up another. And it sounds a lot like what happens here. So I'm curious if the other cars they're accused of stealing are also Kia's and Hyundai's and Mm. if they stole them via a USB cord, because apparently you can do that as easy as a three minute TikTok.
1: Wow. Shocking. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. I'm I'm interested to hear when you hear back from the police. Uh, Dr. Joseph, um, Like, how are we supposed to process this? I mean, these are young people, teenagers, not only accused of what we saw in the video, but apparently connected to other hit and runs, stolen cars, the one bragging, oh, I'll only get 30 days. I mean, what has gone wrong uh, in in the lives of these, these two young men? Dr. Joseph, can you hear me?
3: Oh, I'm sorry. I lost that fee. I didn't hear that. Um, so oh, no problem, Dr.
1: Joseph. Heard- let me ask you. Did you hear my question, though? No, there was another voice talking over you. Oh, no problem. Let, let me ask you one more time. I was just saying, I mean, it's so shocking. Every day it feels like it's gotten worse and worse. We now know they were connected to other hit and runs. Um, that they were in stolen cars, long rap sheet. The one of them, one of the the boys said, oh, I'm only going to get 30 days after, you know, he killed a man. I mean, what has gone wrong uh, in these these young men's lives, like, to to lead to this?
3: Uh, Well, if that was actually true, we'd want to learn more about that. Um, You know, in my work with juvenile uh, people in the justice system, We know that the most common diagnosis is trauma. And one of the symptoms of trauma is risk-taking behaviors, rage, and violence. It's not what we think that the movies look like, a kid crying in a corner. Children who are hurt, hurt others, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And I'm not saying that that's an excuse, but when we think about trauma-informed systems and the fact that children are going through systems and not getting Um, rehabilitated, we want to think about the system itself. We want to learn about what was done for them. You know, where the parents worked with, you know, did they develop skills? Were other issues addressed? Was there substance abuse involved? So it's not as easy as it seems. It's not like, oh, this bad kid who has no remorse. These are complicated cases. Now, the, the piece about filming things, we know this is the day of social media. We know that A lot of times regular kids don't think things out, not just kids who were abused and and mistreated throughout their lives. Most kids don't really think things out. So if you have a recipe of a traumatized child, a neglected child, a child that didn't get, let's say, the, the most comprehensive treatment, plus reckless behavior, plus impulsivity, things like this may happen. In the, in the case of two people working together, we don't know what was happening. We don't know if one was the leader and one was the follower. We don't know if there were threats involved. And again, we don't, we don't know if substance abuse was involved. So there's a lot of unknowns. We can't be absolute about everything, we can't be judge and juror. Yeah. But it really speaks to the fact that we need to address trauma from a trauma informed perspective. We need to figure out ways to treat this from a systemic level
1: yeah I get it and i and I hear what you're saying, and, and I obviously feel bad hearing about what what the young one young man went through you know with his mom obviously being abusive and, and arrested on those abuse charges and i can't imagine what it would be like growing up in that kind of a situation, but it's not like acting out beating someone up in school or getting in a fight I mean like to run someone over and it was on video and then to laugh about it i mean it's hard to try to justify that even based on their past i mean am am i wrong to think like that
3: well when you're when you've worked in the court systems and you read these cases and you see and you've done these evaluations you know that there's more to a story we don't know what they were thinking when they were running people over we don't know if they thought oh this is funny he got hit he fell over we don't know if they were like oh my gosh i killed a guy right we don't know in that moment and that's why the video is so important because we want to hear the dialogue we want to see what actually happened we want to know how much they believe that someone was actually hurt. You know, how many times do we see people falling and they don't get hurt? So we don't know the full story. It'd be interesting to see what, how serious they believed in that moment this was. You know, it could be possible that they had no idea the person passed away. Um, so yeah, I think we do need to have more information before we go ahead and make these statements.
1: Yeah, I hear you. But, but again, it is on video and, and you see the guy get hit. Um, And it's just it's hard to imagine they wouldn't have known that they that they really hurt someone, even if they didn't know that they killed him. Caitlin, um, you heard Dr. Joseph talking about the video, social media. Do we know it all? Like if if the motive at all was to get clicks? Was it was it trying to make a video go viral? Is is that why, why it was posted or was it just shared among friends?
4: It doesn't seem to be the case. It doesn't seem to be something that was posted publicly. It looked like something that was shared kind of, as you said, sort of among friends. Um, I think that even... A- teenager who possibly doesn't know the consequences of their own actions knows enough not to put something like this on social media where they can be identified particularly after the one driver was arrested even if they wanted to put it online i think the other you know the other suspect was probably smart enough to in that moment know not only should i not put it online but as we heard from your reporter earlier from your affiliate he allegedly told those people to delete the video and we hear in this video right here they say what's the address we got to get out of here it's very clear in that moment they knew they had done something seriously wrong so maybe they didn't know that they had really harmed the 72 year old earlier or maybe they didn't know that the person in the car was harmed because by all accounts they really weren't according to law enforcement but when you see the effect of that crash when you see that man's body go into the mm-hmm. glass of the front windshield and then roll in the back, it's obvious that something was terribly wrong. And I don't know for a fact if these two had active driver's licenses, but I do know that if you get a driver's license, you have to understand the rules of the road. And you know that if you hit a human being with your car, they could likely die. Yeah. I mean, that's this is this is this is basic stuff. And I think too, Doctor's point earlier, I understand. And I am compassionate to all of these things, but I'm sure you would probably agree with me that this systemic problem needs to be stopped when when that poor child was left at 8 years old when he was taken into the system at 8 years old. That's when we need to get involved so that by the time they are 16, 17, not that 16 and 17 year olds don't also need mental health counseling and care. But I think the the crux of the issue is when these children are vulnerable, we step in then and provide them with the resources. And I really don't think that most states are equipped for that. And that, I think, is where the change needs
1: to
3: happen
1: yeah this is obviously a microcosm to a much bigger issue uh with society um but yeah i just feel for the for the victim's family i mean he was a dad uh had you know had, had a big family had a lot of friends and i just think of them tonight and uh you know they they have to see that video and know how he died it, it's awful caitlin becker uh dr judith joseph i i really appreciate you both coming on on a friday night uh, thank you so much thanks Brian. thank you Okay, still to come tonight, new details about the arrest of six people in Georgia who allegedly tortured and murdered a young woman. The suspects called themselves the Soldiers of Christ. The name alone sounds like a religious group, maybe even a cult, but were they actually a criminal organization posing as a church? And could there be similar groups targeting your loved ones right now? These groups exist. We've got a cult intervention specialist going to join me live coming up. Okay, so now that we know who the soldiers of Christ are, it is time to ask what they are. A half dozen members uh, of the group were arrested about a week ago for allegedly torturing and killing a woman in her 20s and 30s. The victim's emaciated and burned body was found in the trunk of a car in a suburb of Atlanta. Police say the woman left her home in South Korea to join what she thought was a religious organization, but allegedly ended up imprisoned in the group's basement. You see pictures of the basement there. At first, uh, because of the name Soldiers of Christ, it seemed like the group was a religious group, maybe even a cult. But police... Uh, have said they're treating it more actually like a street gang, which is interesting. Now, is there a difference between a cult and a gang? Can a group actually end up being uh, both of them? And could there be more groups like the Soldiers of Christ out there? I'm joined now uh, by Ashlyn Hilliard. She is a cult intervention specialist who helps families and uh, loved ones uh, who have loved ones in cults and other high-control groups. Her organization is called... People uh, leave cults. Uh, you're doing really amazing work, Ashlyn, because we know this is this is an issue all over the country and the world. But, but I got to ask you, have, have you been able to find anything out about the soldiers of Christ? We did the story earlier this week. It was very, very hard to track down what this group was, whether it was a, a cult. Now they're calling it a street gang. What do we know about them?
6: Yeah, happy to be on and thank you for your questions. Um, so it is possible that the soldiers of Christ may actually fit into both of these categories for different reasons. I find that these categories often have a lot of overlap uh, between cults and gang. And what exists between both cults and gangs is the use of coercive control. So coercive control is an act or a pattern of acts of assault, threats humiliation, and intimidation, or other abuse that is used to harm, punish, or frighten victims. So coercive control may be inflicted through interpersonal relationships in the group or directly from the group leader. It may be enacted in the form of physical, emotional, or spiritual abuse, Um, Author Lisa Fontes describes course of control as invisible chains. The use of power and control leaves individuals Mm. in destructive group settings dependent on the group for fear of punishment. Um, Or they fear the removal of everything that the group originally promised to them. So they've worked so hard to achieve, really. So when I think about the matching clothing and the boots, um, I remember the female officer mentioned that on an earlier segment. Um, this further yep. symbolizes group cohesion. The removal of individuality is often something that is seen in not only cults, but gangs as well. And so while there are similarities between cults and gangs due to the common thread, of course, of control, the religious name of the group. And the fact that the victim and the victim's family thought that it was a religious group makes this group stand out um, in the cult sphere specifically. Um, You're right. When I did some initial research, I was curious because we know about other Korean-based groups like the Unification Church, um, Jesus Morning Star, JMS, and Shincheonji. And um, it's not really clear if this group may have been influenced or spun off of any of these other groups yet at this time.
1: Yes one of them was actually, I think, a 15-year-old. So it's not a very big group. Um, do you think that there's more of them out there? Could it just be a very like, small or cult?
6: That's a great question. So I like to sort of think of cults um, beyond thinking of them as existing merely within the context of a large group. It can be helpful to think about how power and control manifest within individual relationships as well so when course control exists within a relationship family or group a cultic group or relationship may be formed so cults can certainly be small and this family system was operating similarly as a destructive cult would um, one of the family members could have been operating as a cult leader. Um, there could have been a hierarchy instilled. And if someone in the family were to voice objections or not want to go along with what was demanded of them, they could have faced threats of violence themselves. So it's hard to say based off of the information we know, but it is certainly possible that this could have been acting as a family cult
1: yeah it's it's certainly disturbing It's interesting to hear your perspective on it um Ashlyn uh, thanks for all the work you do uh, helping people who fall into these situations sadly um it was uh it was too um it was too short for for this woman. I do have one more question though before I, I let you go um, I'm curious why they would have lured this woman from from South Korea. Um, do we have any idea about that I mean from all the way on the other side of the world
6: sure i mean um it's hard to honestly say how much information the family had on the group, um, on their spiritual mission, or what motives they may have had for sending this young woman to the U.S. to join this group. I hope that the officers find it out more during the course of their investigation. But what I can say for certainty is that no one would want to willingly join a destructive cult. People join what they see to be yeah. a community, a new church, a new relationship. And sometimes we realize that that experience that we have in these diverse settings is not what was originally advertised or what we experienced in the early stages. Um, We like to tell people that sometimes joining a group is akin to falling in love and that it's not always rational. And upon entry into an abusive group, whether it be a religious cult or gang, initially one may find community or friendship. Groups, ultimately offer something, something hooked in this woman or her family. And they may, um, once Mm. someone's in that setting, start putting their trust in individual members or higher-ups. Members may view their experience as being on an exciting new path. Um, It could have been exciting for her to come to the U.S. And um, they may have had other experience that further committed them to the cause. But at the same time, on the flip side, someone in a destructive cult Will experience a loss of autonomy in different aspects of their life. They will experience great pressure from the group, and they will be driven to advance the goals of the group, yeah. even if it puts themselves or others in the group at risk of harm. So, in terms of yeah, you know, it's really it's, it's really
1: sorry to know sorry to interrupt you. I was just no please yeah I was just processing what you were saying. It's really um, it's really disturbing, and, and the fact that uh, you know such smart people just can fall into these. These cults, it could really That's happen so to different. anyone. Uh, Ashlyn Hilliard, again, thank you. Thank you for the hard work you do. We really appreciate you coming on tonight.
6: Thank you for bringing me in, appreciate it.
1: Okay, still to come, uh, Alec Murdoch rocked the low country this week by admitting to a slew of financial crimes while still maintaining innocence in the murders uh, that he was convicted of. We also heard from Cousin Eddie, the longtime Murdoch cohort and alleged partner in crime, whom Alex supposedly asked to shoot him in the head. What is going on with this case and Cousin Eddie and all the rest? Seems like it'll never end. We're going to get into it coming up. Now that Alec Murdoch has pleaded guilty to a laundry list of federal crimes and is demanding a new trial for the murders of his wife and son, there is still one player in this winding tale whose own serious charges are yet to be resolved. And I'm talking about Curtis Smith, a.k.a. Cousin Eddie, the longtime friend, former client and distant relative of Alec Murdoch. Last night on this program, Smith's attorney told us that Smith absolutely believes Murdoch was involved in Maggie and Paul's murder uh, because Alec supposedly actually told him so. That was at the scene of the bungled roadside shooting. So many bizarre parts of this story, which Smith now claims wasn't about life insurance at all, but about Alec's fears that he'd be linked to the murders.
3: We well, asked, him, said, why do you want me to shoot you? Because they're going to be able to prove that I was responsible for Maggie and Paul.
1: You saw there Smith spoke in season two of the Netflix docu-series Murdoch Murders, a Southern Scandal. He also shed light on what Alec told him about the night of the murders.
0: When Alex
3: called me. He said, can you run over this way a minute? I said, man, what for? He said, things just got all f***ed up. Just like that.
1: And who is Curtis Smith anyway? How did his life become entangled with Murdoch's? Ashley takes a look.
5: He's been called the Hillbilly Hitman, Cousin Eddie. Fast Eddie. His real name, though, is Curtis Smith. And he first became known outside the low country in a bizarre incident on the side of a country road on Labor Day weekend back in 2021. Since then, Curtis Eddie Smith has been indicted several times as an alleged accomplice in Alex Murdoch's crimes, laundering $2.4 million in checks from Murdoch over the years. He's also accused of trafficking drugs and someone Murdoch's defense attorneys describe as his personal drug dealer. (laughs) But who is Curtis Smith and what kind of a relationship did he really have with Alex? Court records say the 62-year-old was born on Paris Island in Beaufort County. He's the eldest of three brothers and a distant cousin of Alex Murdoch. Smith worked as a logger and then as a trucker for years before being caught up in the Murdoch saga. He even co-founded a logging business. But in 2007, an on-the-job back injury left him disabled and then steered him towards using opioids. Despite being accused of laundering millions... Smith lived in a modest home just outside of Walterboro, South Carolina. And bank records show he had less than $60,000 to his name, much of which was from an unrelated fire insurance settlement. Over the last several months, attorneys for both Smith and Murdoch have appeared on morning shows pushing two very different depictions of just who Curtis Eddie Smith really is. One side paints a picture of a cold-blooded henchman, a hitman in a murder-for-hire scheme. Murdoch's attorneys say Murdoch himself asked Smith for a bizarre favor over a year ago. They say Murdoch asked Smith to shoot him in the head so that Murdoch's remaining son, Buster, could collect a $10 million life insurance payout.
1: He called this guy um, who met him on the side of the road, agreed to shoot him in the head, Um, and uh, this fake uh, uh, car breakdown, Uh, 30
3: minutes later, this guy shooting him in the head, didn't try to persuade him not to do it, didn't hesitate at all.
5: The other version of Curtis Smith is a, a gullible fall guy, duped by a cunning Murdoch on several occasions. Someone who referred to Murdoch as brother, for whom he would do anything. Smith has said in his own interview that he never shot Murdoch, that he actually wrestled the gun away from Murdoch to stop him from killing himself.
3: Yeah, you, know, you got to take care of this. And I said, well, I can't do it. And he told me he turned his head. I just grabbed his arm, put it behind his head, took the gun from
1: him. Made sure he couldn't kill himself. And no crime. No crime. Smith has yet to enter a plea to any of the charges against him, uh, including uh, that insurance fraud charge, the money laundering and drug trafficking will, of course, uh, keep you posted on this one. There always seems to be new uh, twists and turns involving the Murdochs. Okay, still to come tonight, one of the highlights of CrimeCon for me and... Yes, I am at CrimeCon right now, live, anchoring the show. Uh, I got to meet face-to-face with the great friend of The Banfield Show, Dr. Catherine Ramsland. You should have seen me. I was, like, searching all over this conference to find Dr. Ramsland. I was on a mission. I found her. We talked about serial killers, psychology of murder. What was most interesting, though, is why she told me she got into the serial serial killer business to begin with in the first place. Uh, You're going to hear our conversation coming up. So I was at CrimeCon today. I'm actually technically still here because I'm, I'm in a mobile studio out in the parking lot. I'm going to run back inside and hang out with everybody when the show's over. I'd never been to CrimeCon before. It sounds kind of weird, CrimeCon, but it's actually like really serious. Uh, a lot of victim advocates come together, uh, crime experts, victims' family members. They come together for this conference every year. I've really learned a lot already. Um, and if you are a fan of this show, Banfield you've probably seen Dr. Catherine Ramsland on the show before. She's a serial killer expert. We have all sorts of people on the show, but I've always just been fascinated by Dr. Ramsland because she studies serial killers. I've wanted to know, like, what is Dr. Ramsland really like? What would she be like to meet in person? Because we've only interviewed uh, each other through, through the screen. Uh, so I was determined to find her. I found out she was at the crime conference today. Like, I was literally almost like a stalker going up and down the halls trying to, trying to talk to her. I finally tracked her down. I want you to hear our conversation. <sighs> So I'm here with uh, Dr. Katherine Ramsland, a serial killer expert. Um, I basically had to stalk you to find you because I'm <laughs> such a big fan. I was like, I'm going to find Dr. <laughs> uh, Ramsland at this CrimeCon convention. But h- how has it been so far? You gave a speech today. I mean, a lot of people are very interested in, in uh, your research. How's it going so far yeah, CrimeCon? This is,
2: this is my third CrimeCon. Um, I was on a panel today and great audience, large audience. They had a lot of good questions. And we were really able to talk about... Why do we study these people in a way that will help us to prevent future serial killers? And that's probably the most important part of the kind of work we do.
1: So you're always talking about um, other cases, but what I thought was interesting was you opened up today about um, your own personal story (laughs) of why perhaps you're so interested in all of this, something family-related.
2: So I, I was asked the question, how did I get into it? I, I talked about, in, during my childhood, there, there was a serial killer in my town. And, but also I have stuff in, in my background that's, that's got violence associated with it. My, one, my father's mother was murdered. I never knew her. She was, um, and my great-grandfather on the other side of the family tried to poison everybody so he could run off with someone else and that didn't work but there's there's certainly violence in the background that's kind of trickled down to me.
1: Tried to poison the whole family?
2: Tried to poison the whole family yeah.
1: Have you ever looked into that since you're interested? In there's cr- n-
2: you know family secrets <laughs> it's hard to penetrate walls we I, I have that much information but I didn't get to find out much more.
1: So interesting. I, do you think that did influence you into doing the, the work you do?
2: I think it influenced me because um, one of the things when when we'd go on family trips, my father would sing songs about d- dying and death and getting shot and gunslinging and stuff. So, wow. so it influenced him because I believe he found his mother murdered. So it influenced him, but I think it kind of came through him to me without my realizing that was the you know sort of a trigger for me so
1: interesting because I always wondered what made you so so interested I want to ask you while we have you about BTK Mm -hmm. so much talk about him lately, uh, especially possibly connected to other cases. The the DA came out and said that they don't have enough evidence right now. There's a task force, though. What do you think? Do you think, I mean, you spent a lot of time with him. Do you think that he's connected to other unsolved cases?
2: Well, I talk with him a lot about about that. And what we have are uh, items that a law enforcement is interpreting one way, and Rader has his own interpretation. And my feeling is, get actual evidence don't don't convict him on innuendo. There's items you can test. Get them tested. Let's see what happens. That doesn't mean those cases are going to get closed. But if I were the family of a of somebody that's the focus of a cold case, I don't want it closed by innuendo. I want to close with proof. And Rader has said, why wouldn't I confess? I confess to all the others. Why wouldn't I go for it? And He doesn't have any consequences to do so. He feels like he doesn't want to say he doesn't want to confess to something he didn't do. That's his position. Uh, I don't know if he's telling the truth or not. I say let's get evidence.
1: Do you think he would have told you by now if if these things were true?
2: Not necessarily. I don't think he. If he's going to hold it close to the best, he's not going to tell anybody.
1: Yeah. Well, Dr. Ramblin, thank you. It's always a pleasure to interview you on TV, and thank it's you. so nice to see you in person. Yes, so.
2: very much so. I'm glad we met.
1: Thank you so much. Gosh, she's just so fascinating. I could have talked to Dr. Ramblin all day. I'm glad I got to meet her in person. Okay, coming up next, uh, an update on one of the strangest stories uh, that we are watching right now. A mom and her three kids from Virginia. Are they or are they not missing? Police in Virginia say yes help us find them the husband and kids father says no everything's fine uh who are we supposed to believe what's really going on we got the details in a minute Nobody is completely sure tonight where a Virginia woman and her three children are, and here is the strange part. Police where she lives in Franklin County I uh, say Lauren Elizabeth Tausa-Cook and her children are definitely missing persons, not seen since September 5th, 17 days ago, and her extended family uh, has had no contact with her. At the same time, though, Cook's husband and the kid's father told local news reporters that everything's fine. And he's not concerned about their safety. So which version do we believe? It's a mystery. Nobody's given up any details. But Virginia police are asking the public's help uh, in spotting and reporting the whereabouts of Elizabeth Cook and her three kids, ages seven, five. You see them there and two years old. Hopefully soon we'll have some positive news uh, on this head scratcher of a story, missing or not, something strange seems to be going on. They need to get to the bottom of it, but in the meantime, uh, please um, keep a keep an eye out for those three kids and and that missing woman. Police say she's missing. Okay, that's Banfield this Friday night. I'm live from Co- Crime Con in Orlando. Uh, hopefully Ashley's feeling better. She'll rest up this weekend. Hopefully she'll be back Monday. Have a great weekend. Uh, Cuomo's coming up next. Spomo. I wish I was Brian Enten. It's Friday. We're live. So let's get after it. He's younger. He's smarter. He's better. That hair. All right. I want to start off a little light so that we can get into what's really heavy here. And again, it's, it is a call to decency. This one-year-old kid. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants.